Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. I've always said that the election should happen at the best time for the country. Now is that time. There's nobody who needs a homily from Hall Martin. Look, they've taken our policies. They are bereft of policy. He could be just saying that to get forward, but he doesn't even do any of it. This is Election Daily, the special series from the Inside Politics podcast team at the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Every evening we keep you up to date on this general election campaign with our expert correspondents who today comprise the Taoiseach and Tánaiste of the Irish Times politics team. <laughs> happy Brexit Day uh, to Fiac. Happy Brexit Day to Pat. And many happy returns, Hugh. And we will be joined in a little while by our London editor, uh, Dennis Staunton, to, to look at this great day and what it means for us all. But first of all, very, very briefly, um, that kind of turbulent uh, Virgin Media TV debate last night, I'm going to offer my uh, tuppence at first. I thought that on balance, because even though his high-pitched interjections were incredible, incredibly annoying and he hopped up and down like a bit of a Muppet. He wasn't quite as annoying as his co-host. Uh, I'm going to give it to Matt Cooper because th- that was what it was about. It was about those two. It was it? about those two. It was a really, really strange um, debate. Uh, it was like, you know, the opening question from Ivan Yates, if you could call it that, like, you know, look, this day and age, people, you know, have a, a lower opinion of politicians, but you have the Taoiseach Taoiseach, you know, aspiring Taoiseach and all the leaders of the main political parties and your first question is, are you a a share of chancers and charlatans or whatever it was? You know, it's a bit of of decorum, I think, with these things. And on and on it went. And Also coming from Ivan, some might say a bit rich, but anyway. It was just basically a shouting contest for the first half an hour. I doubt anybody stayed with it who isn't involved or really interested in politics. And that's one of the things I think it made it irrelevant because it was so unwatchable it was so that unwatchable. people were and gone. Like even talking to people in the parties today, you'd bring it up in conversation, you go, what do you think anyone that's done? It's in the past. Nobody's dwelling on it because it's now seen of little consequence because it was, it was so kind of off the wall. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's all really that we, we need to say about it. I'll take turn... one more thing okay. about it, very briefly, uh, if I may. And that is, I only came in for the last three quarters of an hour because I was at an event down the country. And what struck me about it uh, at that stage is that, that last part of it, particularly the coalition discussion, was utterly dominated by Hall Martin fighting with Mary Lou MacDonald. And in a way, I think that's going to be the decisive story of the, the decisive contest of the last week. And we can talk about that a little bit more in due course. But actually, I, I think in that respect, at least, the debate was maybe a precursor for the debate. Well, indeed, that then leads us seamlessly, as I, I expect nothing less, to we want to talk about the story which you have in tomorrow's Irish Times. People can find more detail on this in Saturday's newspaper. But we did something, not an opinion poll, but some focus groups to get a sense of what voters who are wavering might be thinking. 
Yeah, so we conducted a number of focus groups, which is a device used by extensively by political parties which is to assemble a group of randomly chosen voters from the same demographic and to hold a moderated discussion about the campaign, about politics, about their voting intentions and the sort of things that will influence them. So we did that. We did a few of them in uh, Dublin on Tuesday night. We did a few of them in Mullingar last night. Uh, and uh, the idea, I suppose, is to maybe fill in a little of the colour. So we have our our quantitative opinion polls giving us vote in, you know, the, the quantum of vote intention among the, um, uh, amongst the electorate and we expect there'll be more uh, there'll be more of those over the weekend and possibly early next week. But what the focus groups allow us to do is to probe a little bit behind the reasons for that vote intention and the sort of conversations that are giving rise to vote intention or vote decisions uh, amongst voters. And they're not meant to be absolutely representative in in proportional terms. So the I mean, numbers three don't people matter. in your focus group matter. say they're going to mm. vote for Sinn Féin, that doesn't mean Sinn Féin are going to get 30% of the, uh, of the vote. But the discussion, if they're done properly in the moderation, selection is done properly, the moderation is done properly, and then the reading of them afterwards is done properly, they can give you a good, I think insight into how messages are playing, how the campaign is going around the water coolers of the country and the sort of directions that it might be likely so to So what happened, and we don't want to give all the detail so that we can save something for tomorrow, but just an overall sense. I think, um, I'm still digesting it here, I suppose, but I think, you know, one of the most important opinion poll findings at the start of this campaign in the first of our campaign polls was that 75% of people were looking for a change, roughly equally split between those looking for a radical or transformational change and those looking for uh, a less uh, a less radical change. That mood of change or that desire for change has, I think, become one of the central animating forces in this election campaign. And talking to these sets of, uh, of voters that we assemble between us. It's clear that that mood of change, that desire for change is still out there. It's as strong as, uh, it's as, strong as ever. And there's a large number of voters that do want a total change, a radical change. But there's also a bunch of them that are wondering about the nature of that change. So they're change voters, but they're nervous or uncommitted change voters. Hence your point about the sharpness between Mary Lou MacDonald and Michal Martin, because they are competing in exactly that space. Yes, I think so. I think that, uh, and of course there are other parties in this, and even you notice that Fine Gael, uh, presumably reading exactly the same sort of research that we're trying to interpret, is saying things like, we have learned the lessons, we will change if we are in, uh, we, we're, we're, we're in government. But I think that's exactly right. I think one of the central uh, and decisive contests of the next week is for those change voters between Micheál Martin and Mary Lou MacDonald. Interestingly, you know, a lot of our time in the course of a campaign is just ringing people from around the country we know who are on the campaign trail and you have to filter it all that everybody's too close to it or spinning you or whatever. But one thing I heard from Fine Gael and non-Fine Gael uh, people in the last two days was that people who want to change were now slightly, according to this telling of it, Attacking the change that they wouldn't want the change necessarily of government, they wanted a change of approach. Yes, and, and that, that the is, argument was now becoming 
okay, you want change, we will, we, will, we will bring in the change you want, but you don't want to go with the other guys. So it's now, you can have change, but you can have change with the people who are still in government now. Tough sell. Tough a very sell, tough sell. Tough sell, but, but registering a, 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 with some registering, members of these... A, a, and according groups. to people um, who have been out canvassing, registering with some voters too. So that is interesting that it tallies with what Pat has found in the focus groups. Well, people can read that in great detail in tomorrow's newspapers. I want to turn to another story, which is one that you had today, Fiak, which is about something that always gets really sharp, Uh, really interesting. At this point, with seven days, eight days to go to the election, it's when the dirty tricks bags come out and they're rarely deployed against uh, opponents. They're usually deployed within party tickets. Yeah, this is when the the competition becomes keenest between, you know, two sitting TDs or sitting TD and, I know, thrusting young running mate who's coming up on the outside and all everything goes out the window so I, I picked out a few of them today uh, in, in the Irish Times and obviously on our website about where we expect tensions let's say to flare up over the next days the most obvious example is Mead East three seater three outgoing TDs two Finnegan ministers Helen McIntyre Eugene Doherty <laughs> don't have the easy relationship to put it mildly and then Thomas Byrne from Fianna Fáil is kind competitive of like an, tension yeah you could have, Thomas Byrne is like an innocent bystander in the whole thing as this goes <laughs> on around them so uh, you would you would watch that one if there is a pressure on the Finnegan vote uh, and the two of them are going and there is a Sinn Féin rise if not surge Darren O'Rourke is a strong Sinn Féin candidate there he would be in the hunt as well so I think the two of them got two seats on 35% with a Fianna Fáil comparative vote of 26% in the last election so that's one to watch over the weekend So what happens in a situation what like happens? that? What are, what are the things that happen in these last well, like, few days? Well like this is entirely theoretical in no way uh, <laughs> no informed by reality or anything like that but one thing that, that sometimes happens is you kind of, what is it, roll the pitch, is that what you call it? Or pit, when you prepare to do something. So suddenly, suddenly you know, the Bush Telegraph and the constituency might flare up, but, you know, talk of an, a headquarters has done an opinion poll which shows that, you know, let's say, in theory, that the Fianna Fáil candidate, the Sinn Féin, Sinn Féin candidate is way out in front, followed by the second Sinn Féin or Fianna Fáil candidate. And then one of our two candidates is coming third or fourth for the last seat, just a nose ahead of the other candidate, and we have to put all our resources behind the best place candidate, which basically gives license to ignore any boundaries, uh, agreements there have been, romp into other people's territories, canvas in towns they're not allowed canvas in. That's one way of doing it. Another way of doing it, which uh, again is entirely theoretical, of course, is that one candidate may be told, look, you know, we've told your running mate that they have to give you this part of the constituency here and they have to share with you and you ring the running mate and you go, I've heard you've given up, like, you know, this part of the constituency. You go, well, that's not really the case, but I actually have been told. So I have to maximise my first preference goes, get as big a surplus as I can to bring the other person in. So there's all this type of stuff goes on over the weekend and this is the weekend when it happens because this is the real crunch time. There are a couple of other examples on that. So Dublin Bay South is another one in Fine Gael. Kate O'Connell and Owen Murphy. There's never any love lost between these the running mates, is there? The funny thing is that Owen Murphy in the last general election did give up a good chunk of the constituency to help get Fine Gael to help get Cato Connell like this was of course to get what all, used to be Lucinda Creighton this was to seat. basically take Lucinda Creighton out mm, a right. huge organisational effort went into it uh, Cato Connell said thank you very much and has made his life pretty tough since, <laughs> since that particular point in time uh, <laughs> he's, a, he's a choir boy isn't he's he? a choir boy so fam- famously during the Fine Gael leadership contest which saw Owen Murphy managed Leo Vracker's campaign Cato Connell who was in the Coveney side said you know that uh, Vracker supporters were like choir boys singing for their supper now since then the relationship has deteriorated even further, as far as we can tell. And I, I don't think it was ever that. I, hot. I don't. I don't think. I don't think Murphy will be as generous with his vote this time, particularly when the view locally in Dublin Bay South is that Eamon Ryan 
like it depends on who you talk to he's either getting a quote and a half or two quotes or whatever he's going to top the poll uh, and there's and his, tra- his transfers will probably determine who gets the last yes seat. and if you look at the transfer pattern in the local elections that the green say like Hazel Chu got elected out there huge vote two quotes to, yeah, yeah surplus to the Labour Party so that'll be another there's a, there's a hope in, there's a hope in the Labour Party in that constituency Kevin Humphreys. that even though Kevin Humphreys is not necessarily thought to be going particularly well yeah. that Eamon Ryan will have such a huge surplus and enough of it would go to Kevin Humphreys yeah. to get him elected which would leave you with yeah. two out of Kate O'Connell Owen Murphy and Jim just, O'Callaghan just one more to spread to okay, spread just one more. Not yeah, Fine Fine Gael, like, you're really talking about Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael here because they're the only two who have like you know in, like competition between the parties Cork North, Cork North West is the ultimate Irish bellwether constituency it's always two Fianna Fáil one Fine Gael or two Fine Gael one Fianna Fáil uh, uh, two Moynihan's Andrews and Michael Moynihan are the two outgoing Fianna Fáil TDs uh, Michael Moynihan's the Chief Whip and Michael Creed is the Fine Gael uh, TD Fine Gael did a nice bit of work there in recent years there was a guy called John Paul O'Shea who was a well-known independent councillor stood in the last general election on a non-party ticket got 5,000 first preference votes he is now running for Fine Gael and the view locally in both parties is that he is going very very well so Michael Moynihan is said to be under a bit of pressure as we head into the final week so we'd wonder if he will be helping himself to Andreas Moynihan's vote and you know there might be a bit of a friction there too so they're the ones to watch Okay, this are well starts. worth watching this is where the entertainment starts so listen before we move on just to mention again that we are holding an Inside Politics election event for subscribers next Wednesday evening in front of a live audience in Trinity College Dublin where I'll be joined by Fintan O'Toole by Jennifer O'Connell by Jennifer Bray Mary Minahan and also by Pat who's here with us today to discuss all the ins and outs of general election 2020 and that is just one example of course of the many benefits which can flow your way if you go to irishtimes.com slash subscribe and sign up for a digital subscription with the first month costing only one euro. That's irishtimes.com slash subscribe. Now, Dennis Staunton, happy Brexit Day. Happy Brexit Day to you too, Hugh. Are you um, munching on a Marks and Spencer's pork pie while sipping a pint of your finest bitter? Oddly not, no. Um, But Boris Johnson this evening is having a party in Downing Street starting at nine o'clock and they are going to be serving English sparkling wine and uh, also some canopies including uh, Shropshire blue cheese and uh, uh, roast lamb on toast and is, um, and uh, and roast beef with Yorkshire pudding and horseradish sauce all as a canopy also, also, also sounds very nice. Is English sparkling wine the only sort of wine that people will be allowed to drink in Britain now? Well it's uh, Boris Johnson calls it Brexit juice and uh, so I think it's going to be the only wine that uh, that they're serving this evening in Downing Street but I think I think you're probably still going to be able to um, uh, to get some uh, some decent claret and uh, and some some wines from elsewhere certainly for the transition period up until the end of this English year. sparkling wine is quite good actually I can report having tasted it it's uh, well, quite, quite good and champagne like I, ca- I can't possibly comment because I've never Ever had, but you know, who knows what and lies why ahead. is that, Pat? Pat is something of an enophile, so you would know why English wine well, is, is as good as champagne. It is, as I'm sure you're aware, Dennis, is that the similar geographical or it's an extension of the geographical uh, underlay of champagne. The chalky soil extends as far as, uh, as Sussex, where most English okay, okay, wine that's is enough of that. That's a, that, that's enough of that. I do want to say, I, Dennis, I refer my learned friend Dennis, to the example we're, of the white cliffs of we Dover. Are mo- we're moving on from that particular <laughs> subject, Dennis. There's, there's only rare occasions, maybe a couple of times a year, when the Irish Times sort of 
changes its front page and redesigns it and rearranges it for some some mighty piece of prose to mark you know the, the passing of some titan or indeed a, a, a serious historical landmark. And today was one of those days. And there you are, London editor, um, on the front of the paper. Why do I feel underwhelmed, not by your piece, but by the event? I think it is uh, the mood here is is very muted. I don't think that uh, there is any great sense of triumphalism on the Brexit side, and the Remainers really gave up the ghost. Really, once the election happened in December, uh, they all folded their tents and walked off the field and just said, "Oh well, that's it. Then we just accept that um, this catastrophe that we've been campaigning against and warning against is just going to happen, and we're just going to accept it." And very few people are talking about anything like a campaign to rejoin the European Union. And it's almost as if um, everybody's, you know, all passion is spent. Uh, they've spent three and a half years in this terrible rancour and uh, everyone's exhausted. And uh, and so the, and and, and, and in fact, that's possibly one of the reasons why the Conservatives won the election with this "get Brexit done," just make this thing end. And I think that a lot of people feel that that they just uh, you know that, that uh, in a way the even talking today to uh, to somebody to one of my colleagues about uh, who would be a Remainer, asking him how he felt, and he's and, and he sort of felt melancholy. He was remembering um, as a boy uh, in 1973 when uh, his father took him to a, a football match in uh, in Wembley Stadium. They had the three against the six, so the three new countries, Denmark, Ireland and, uh, and and the United Kingdom, playing against the six. And so you had people like Bobby Moore and Johnny Giles from Ireland and playing against Franz Beckenbauer. And he was remembering this as just being the moment that uh, he he sort of became conscious of being part of this thing. And so he felt a little bit melancholic, but no, but no more than that, really. Does this help Boris Johnson, this sort of, uh, to take a word from the EU side of the negotiations, de-dramatisation of the whole thing. He, he He doesn't want the word Brexit about the place for the next while, does he? Yes, I think he wants to uh, to suggest, right, I've done what I promised, I've done Brexit, we're out of there, and now uh, it's time to move on to the uh, next stage of the negotiations uh, for the trade agreement. But he's going to talk about that as if it's a kind of a technical thing. And what you're going to have on Monday is he's going to make a speech where he's going to talk about what Britain wants from the European Union negotiations, but also what they want from a trade agreement with the US. And I think he's going to present the EU... Uh, agreement as being just one of many that Britain is doing. And I think also one of the important things that he's going to do, he's signalling that they just want a straightforward, off-the-shelf Canada-style free trade agreements. They're not looking for frictionless trade. They're saying that they accept that there will be checks at the border for goods uh, because of the kind of deal they're looking for. And really they're setting the bar quite low. And uh, and so I think that what they're hoping for is that they will be able to get a pretty straightforward free trade agreement and then possibly build on that uh, you know, some other elements that, uh, that will suit them economically. Is that the way the EU will want to go with these negotiations, Pat? Yeah, I, think that'll, I think that will depend on the nature of that sort of limited, what people in Dublin are referring to as a bare bones type trade agreement, which is all that is likely to be negotiated between now and, uh, and the end of the year. Um, as to how those negotiations actually take shape over the coming months, I, I think to a certain extent we'll have to wait and see what the scope of their ambition is and so forth. One thing is pretty. One, one thing is pretty clear, though I think, is that Brexit will shortly 
crank up again. Uh, Dennis makes a welcome return to our front page today. Readers will no doubt remember that, you know, for much of last year, he was a permanent fixture there because Brexit was a huge issue, not just in London, but in Ireland. It hasn't been during this sort of Brexit armistice, if you like. And funnily enough, to bring it back to Irish politics, that probably hasn't worked to the government's advantage in this election. I mean, it was widely assumed that they were having the election the start of February to have it as close to the Brexit date as possible in order to trade on the perceived success of their role in the Brexit negotiations. But instead, as Simon Coveney was moaning about this week, Brexit hasn't featured at all in this general election. The irony is when as soon as the general election is out of the way and the talks begin again in March and Coveney warned during the week that some pretty difficult decisions may arise for Ireland in respect of fisheries and other issues pretty early in the negotiations, that is between the March and June uh, module of, of negotiations, that will happen just as soon as the new government is formed rather than in the middle of a general election campaign which ironically might have been more politically advantageous. It's funny that like what Boris Johnson is dialing it down somewhat that Fine Gael here is trying to dial it up in the mm. last day or two you know I, I, you saw the thing about Simon Coveney and Helen McEntee and Pascal who were visiting Dublin Port at 5am this morning to inspect facilities they've inspected I think before if I'm, if I'm right there I, I remember that, spending a particularly um, tedious Sunday with right. them but the thing is so at least we found that they're, they're still there the, the, and the, the dynamic in the campaign is interesting here I think that well, Michal Martin says, he says nobody's talking about Brexit in a way what he's done the last 24 hours has brought Brexit, Brexit back as an issue. So Phil Hogan has denied, of course, that the statement he made to or to use Tony Connolly w- warning about what was going to happen uh, in the next phase, as, as Pat has said, was anything to do with the general election. But, uh, the, the, the very perished thought. To, perished to thought. But like, I, I, I'm sure somewhere in the back of, not even in the back of any of Fine Gael's mind or anyone else's mind, that Phil Hogan would make such a statement that Michal Martin would object to it. It would cause a row and it would get people talking about Brexit again, which is exactly what happened. So I think in Fine Gael, there's something of a satisfaction that Brexit has come back onto the pitch, that there will be this backwash of media from the UK over the weekend about the event itself taking place. Dennis has just spoken about Boris Johnson's speech on Monday. That will feature here too. So maybe it hasn't featured in the campaign here to date, but maybe it just might over the next few days. Is it the case, Dennis, that from a British perspective, that the Irish element of this whole process is now off the table and dealt with because of the arrangements which have been made for Northern Ireland, and Ireland is now again just one small member of a much larger organisation which will be negotiating these free trade arrangements? Or is there still a question mark about how those arrangements will work and perhaps a suspicion about whether they'll be implemented to an acceptable level by the UK government when it comes to checks in the Irish Sea, for example. Yeah, there is a question mark, certainly from the uh, European side, as to whether uh, the British are going to fulfil their obligations uh, with regard to uh, to what they're going to do about Northern Ireland. Boris Johnson keeps telling everybody that there will be unfettered access uh, on you know in both directions across the Irish Sea between Northern Ireland and the rest of the United Kingdom, and that's clearly just not true as far as the uh, agreement is concerned. And if you talk to the British, they'll keep saying, well, you know, everything will be worked out in a joint committee. But the Europeans say the joint committee can talk about details of how you do stuff. The joint committee can't change the arrangements. That's in a treaty. And so there is a certain amount of tension about that. But that's probably going to be more between London and Brussels rather than London and Dublin. And I think that you're right that uh, as far as the British are concerned, the Irish question is resolved. And, of course, one of the reasons that Boris Johnson went for a Northern Ireland only backstop uh, 
was so that the rest of the United Kingdom would be able to diverge and go off into a Canada-style arrangement without having to worry about the impact on uh, the, the settlement in Northern Ireland or the border in Ireland or anything like that. And so, uh, so I think as far as they're concerned, it's kind of uh, sorted. And in fact, now I would say that they would hope that the Irish would be a relatively friendly element of the 27 in the and next And that's phase. a very, just as, as a last point then, Pat, on that, isn't it the case that we've kind of turned the tables now and we've, we've gone back to a situation before the whole uh, hellish negotiations around the backstop where in a situation where the United Kingdom is negotiating with the European Union, that the interests of Ireland are very much um, aligned with some of the interests of the United Kingdom because our economies are still so entwined? Well, the interest the interest of Ireland is as close as possible relationship and if that requires concessions to the uh, to the UK then I suspect that the view in Dublin might be that that, that that would be a desirable outcome however I think that Dublin would be very very careful and Michelle Barnier was over emphasising this at uh, this point again I think Dublin would be very careful about undermining any unity between the EU the British made Trojan efforts diplomatically to pick off EU members when Ireland was the difficult, uh, when, when Ireland was the sticking point in the negotiations on the withdrawal agreement. That was largely, uh, that, that largely unsuccessful, and uh, I think that Brussels will be keeping a very close eye that Ireland doesn't. Ireland doesn't switch sides, as it were. Well, we should leave it there. A historic moment, although a fairly affectless kind of a one, it seems to me. Thanks to Dennis for joining us. It's great to hear from you, Dan Dennis. After quite a while, thanks to Pat and to Fiek. We will, of course, be back with Election Daily. We'll have another podcast over the course of the weekend as well. But thanks also to our producer, Declan Conlon. You can find us on all those usual podcast platforms, which I'm just bored in telling you about. And you can get us at irishtimes.com slash podcast. You can mail us at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. Or you can find us most of the time, although according to Pat, not at the weekend, on Twitter. Uh, on Until the next time, thanks for listening.